Turn on your soundbite recorder now because here's one for free. I love talking, Joe, because they're so precise and they're so real about the things that they are digging into. They care. They want every comic to be perfect because comics are expensive and they're hard to make. And nobody knows that better than Tim Finn. And that's why he offers such detailed critiques and analysis of every single panel of every single book they read. This is a dedication to quality that I, Brandon Jerwa, admire in the Talking Joe podcast. I'm Brandon Jerwa, and Tim Finn did not approve this message. We're gonna talk about comics from Devil's Jew. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, oh. Hey, 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 everybody, it's me, Dr. Mark. Um, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. If you are new to the show, you can find out all of the details about us over at the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. Now, today we are continuing our look at the disavowed era of G.I. Joe with issues 40 and 41, Union of the Snake, part five and six of six from Devil's Due, March and April 2005. Now... With that preamble done, I can introduce my co-host. As always, it's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. Hello to all of you. Where was it? Oh, in my latest update, I see that we're continuing to do well in Hong Kong. But this last month, we have also been doing well in Egypt. So a big welcome to all of our new Egyptian listeners. I'd particularly like to call out all of the citizens of Pyramid City, uh, who that, that's that's where the, that Deke episode. Uh, is that Revenge of the Pharaoh? Yeah. OK, yeah. OK. The Sunbow episode is The Gods Below, 1985. And the Deke episode is Revenge of the Pharaohs. And the Night Creeper leader falls in love with Lady J after he gets bonked on the head in Pyramid City. So uh, there is a G.I. Joe reference for our listeners in Egypt. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, now, I thought before we get into these uh, issues, 40 and 41, we it might be useful to explore the context to, uh, to you know, set the scene of what was going on in the wild and wacky world of Devil's Due Comics back in... Uh, towards the beginning of 2005. Yeah, these two uh, issues are, are cover dated March and April 2005. But they must have shown up in stores in January 2005 and February. Yeah, or a little, yeah maybe possibly or the month before. Or, maybe or, or maybe so. December 04, yeah. So, so swirling around this time in uh, January 2005, there were rumours hinting at cancellations, reboots, relaunches. And on the back of that, uh, Josh Blaylock, president and founder of Devil's Due Publishing, took, uh, took to the web to kind of uh, lay some of those rumours to, to rest and sort of, you know, break some news about the future of the 
books i thought uh let's let's talk about that and what it might mean for kind of what's going going on in these issues so uh it was announced back in in january 2005 that issue 43 would be the last issue of the current gi joe ongoing series and then shortly after that a new series would be launched uh, within the same continuity but set a year or so later now this new book would be written by joe casey who i guess was a popular writer but but not nearly as well known as as he was later on and new artist stefano caselli uh, and brandon jerwa will be n- uh, will not be continuing the main book uh, but would be working on another top secret project which i believe was going to be snake eyes declassified uh, tim seeley also working on another project so uh, there was a number of reasons sort of stated for the the relaunch in at this time there it was at the back end of the 80s boom now so there was all sorts of 80s nostalgia pro- uh, properties that, uh, that were launched with um gi joe being the front runner for that in 2001 but uh, uh yeah blaylock des- described gi joe as being the lone survivor of of that boom um, even uh, Transformers had uh, sort of imploded. The Dreamwave production had uh, sort of collapsed, and uh, and the Transformers books were were no longer on the shelves. Um, so he sort of puts a lot of the blame on on sort of the the kind of the marketing s- struggle, the, the the numbers for the books that they the the sales had been ebbing away. And despite some pushes, so the uh, Wraith with uh, Michael Turner and Talent Caldwell, uh, Serpentor coming back, Orc being shot and paralysed. Apart from that, nothing uh, was there to that sort of changed the uh, the dial significant enough that uh, that they they could stay the course. Uh, he he says that they want the fifty thousand or so fans who left the book to come back again. So 50,000 left the book since its height in, uh, in 2001 or so, you know, against the context of, of the seven or so thousand that uh, IDW is tracking at. Uh, it's quite, quite a difference between, uh, between eras. So Blaylock thought that just simply continuing as is with a few shakeups wasn't enough. He had to sort of stop the existing book and uh, launch with a new number one. Him. thoughts yeah so part of what blaylock is referring to here is standard attrition mm-hmm. and comic book stores deal with this and, and publishers deal with this all the time let's let's step aside for a moment uh variant covers where you you know you can order a hundred and then you get one special comic let's step aside from that if a comic book store orders 20 copies of issue one of a series they will generally cut that number in half for issue two and then cut it again. And around issue five, that's that's sort of the number at which the comic book store will continue to order that series. And most series over time will slowly go down from there because people get busy, they run out of money, they don't like the book. And this is why, you know, historically comic books, you know, tend to end at you know issue 50 or 100 or start over at a new number one and you can sort of reset that clock with excitement and higher 
print runs and sell through on issue one and issue two. And it it is the rare comic that goes up in sales over time, right? The big example from the last 20 years is The Walking Dead. Think of how many image number ones there have been. I don't mean the like superhero stuff from, you know, Todd McFarlane or like Mark Silvestri as much as I mean all of the creator-owned stuff that didn't make it past issue six or issue 12. And The Walking Dead sales went up and up and up. So when this was happening uh, with G.I. Joe, I think I read this interview at the time because in skimming it for today's episode, it, it felt really familiar. And I did at the time, read the first uh, six or ten issues of the series that does replace this. I got excited by this announcement that the series was Mm. ending, relaunching, new writer, new artist. The new artist was uh, a good step in in a a good direction for me. And I was a big fan of Joe Casey at the time. So Mark had just referred to uh, he was not as well-known or he wasn't as well-known maybe to the average G.I. Joe fan. Joe Casey had written... Uh, had been writing Uncanny X-Men, and that run is uneven, but it's really interesting. And uh, importantly, starting in 1999-2000, Joe Casey takes over Wildcats. This is the second Wildcats series. He takes over after the first arc, which is Scott Lobdell, and he writes the second series and the third series. He writes Wildcats for I forget, roughly five years. And that's when Wildcats goes from being a really good PG-13 book to a mature reader's book when Wildstorm relaunches with all of its books, like four comics or so as mature reader's book, the quote, eye of the storm sort of imprint that took over Wildstorm. Joe Casey did excellent work on Wildcats. So I was really psyched. You know, I had the fundamental question. If you're going to start over, why not get Larry Hama? Just get Larry Hama. But if you're going to get someone who's new or outside of the world of G.I. Joe, Case is a good person. Had he definitely done X-Men by this point? Yes, he was. He was. He'd already finished Uncanny X-Men or he was still writing his run, which was uh, 20, 20 issues or longer. I forget. But it was it was Ron Garney and then Sean Phillips and then Chuck Austin took over writing. Anyway, back to G.I. Joe. <laughs> so what was interesting as well from the sort of the talking about this this interview is that one of the things that Blaylock talks to is that that what they'll be doing is altering the way that the G.I. Joe team operates and the structure of Cobra to make it more accessible to casual readers, new readers and big name creative talent and sort of reading between the lines there it's saying if you've not grown up obsessed with gi joe then there's a you know to get the big names in it's a little bit of a hurdle when there's this massive cast and continuity to to deal with let's sort of strip some of that back and by having a, a smaller team that this sort of the this smaller team that that kind of has been implemented in these last few issues that means that then there's less thing, less less complexity to to juggle for uh, a new writer. So it it feels like there's this editorial edict on these last few issues coming in of simplify down the story and the number of characters, clean clean clear things up, ready for a new writer to to take on a stripped back version of GI Joe. Something which Mark and I 
probably should look into and think about for either our next episode wrapping up this run or the episode after starting the G.I. Joe series that begins after this with the new creative team is in a general sense, what's happening in late 2004, uh, early 2005 with G.I. Joe toys and comics sales or what are the what are the comics that are hitting really big at that time? Uh, because just sort of, you know, off the cuff, you know, what's happening with the Transformers license at another publisher? Uh, what's happened with, with Thundercats, uh, you know, at, at uh, DC Wildstorm? What are the G.I. Joe toys doing? Um, some of this may be that all the, all the fans who show up for issue one back in 2001 are motivated by nostalgia and... Uh, so the swirl of the events of the terrorist attacks of September 11th and uh, that there had been no G.I. Joe for a couple of years. And now at issues 40 and 41, G.I. Joe had been back for a couple of years. And so here comes what might be the elephant in the room. Maybe the 50,000 people who had been reading G.I. Joe around issue one, who Blaylock invites to come back, maybe they don't love the book. So, you know, there, there's a way of saying it like, oh, it may not be accessible or uh, a lot of characters or a lot of continuity. Maybe maybe people didn't like the book. Maybe the book wasn't great and it needed not just a different take, but a, a change in in quality. Maybe there's there's also this barrier to to the number. And I think, you know. People, fans of continuity, do do like continuation of num, not you know the numbering, and you know there's a lot of joy to be had from the fact that Larry Hammer started at issue one and and is now almost at issue three hundred. But mm. um, issue forty four versus a brand new issue one with a new creative team, the issue one is certainly feels like a much smaller barrier to entry to a a, a casual fan who has lapsed and. Uh, once you know once a an accessible jump jumping on point yes and uh later in this interview blaylock says he was surprised by how how many or how loud the comments were uh from fans who disagreed with starting over the numbering he was surprised that 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 people were i guess emailing in or typing on message boards that that they didn't like that the book was wasn't going to continue its numbering so you know people who are already in it's like well they're going to buy the next issue whether it's 44 or 1 but you know absolutely if you are a store hmm a comic book store not mine i'm referring to uh, a page at the very end of issue 41 which i'll get to at, later in this episode and, and so, sort of all with all all that in mind, sort of you know the Josh Blaylock having the 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 writer credit last issue, which was probably written about in the time that the that Brandon Joe was finding out about this new change of direction, and um, and kind of you know some of the dynamics of where the story is heading over the last few issues and the the couple of issues to to come, um, you know does have that context against it of this is an era sort of being wrapped up with a de- definitive endpoint in mind uh, being uh, written to towards and and i think Brandon Jera sort of had talked to you before having kind of a long vision of of how he want you know how he wanted to to have his long story you know play out 
and uh, and obviously that was very much curtailed with just a few months to wrap up get to we, that uh, end we, point we have a we have a long history of beloved uh licensed comic books being canceled before the writer th- expects and having to wrap up things quickly like mm. marvel's transformers right in the letters page of issue 75 double-sized fight it feels like they're gonna have they're gonna keep going and going and going and then like one issue later it's go like, oh, we're canceled issue 80 is our final one you know issue 155 of gi joe there's no groundwork laid laid for it in the couple of issues beforehand so that um uh, the next two issues of Devil's Due by Brandon Jerwa, uh, 42 and 43, are each double-sized. That's a that's neat. Hmm. There's some interesting context as, as well beyond just this book as well, which is that at the same time, the Reloaded book is also being cancelled. So so Blaylock talked to there just not being enough demand to to support it. And although the response uh, was was good especially with chuck dixon taking over the writing part way through um yeah just wasn't selling it enough uh and and um i think and yeah he was saying it's important that there is just one main book uh to focus on with the the relaunch and uh for for that to you know not to, to be a clear unconfusing book the one book for the uh, reader to to pick up this is a this is a continual challenge for publishers, retailers, and then readers sort of get the blunt end of it or get to enjoy it. Um, a publisher wants to get their money's worth. You know, Devil's Due had spent money on the license. And if it can make more G.I. Joe comics, it can creatively succeed by telling more stories and it can excite more fans and it can make more money. Uh, you know, percentage goes back to Hasbro, but you make more money if you sell two comics than if you sell one. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is the argument about what the market will bear. You know, does it start to confuse or bother retailers, comic book stores, if they are ordering many different G.I. Joe things? Because if you have, I don't know, if you're a comic book store and you've got 15 subscribers, you order 15 copies of G.I. Joe, by Devil's Due, you set them aside for them. They come in every month and pick up their issues, and maybe you get a few extra for the rack. You know you're going to sell 15. If there's a second G.I. Joe book happening at the same time, and also a miniseries with some ninjas, and then also a miniseries where they're fighting alien robots, and then like a, a one-off graphic novel that's sort of manga-styled, you, you know, that's a version of standard attrition. Okay, well, the main G.I. Joe book, we'll get the 15 uh, how many of these subscribers want the the spin-off book? Okay, how many of them want the ninja miniseries? How many want the, the miniseries with the Transformers? Uh, no one has asked for this sort of one-off original graphic novel that's kind of manga-styled. Well, we'll get one for the shelf or zero, or we'll get five. And this happens with really popular characters supported by, you know, big movies too. You know, Avengers, Black Panther... When, when the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates took over Marvel's Black Panther, launched a new number one drawn by Brian Stelfreeze, what was it, six years, eight years, ten years ago? That first issue sold like crazy. And as a comic book store owner, I was really excited. And as a reader, I was excited too. And very quickly, Marvel launched a spinoff miniseries that that writer was 
like sort of co-plotting with some other writers who were not as familiar to comic book readers. And then very quickly, there was a second spinoff miniseries. And Marvel was looking ahead. Marvel wanted more graphic novels ready for when, uh, I forget, in the timeline of the cinematic universe with, you know, Captain America Civil War and the Black Panther movie, this is. But Marvel wanted to build up some graphic novels. As a store owner, I just saw the main Black Panther book and then a spinoff and then a spinoff. And the people coming in for the main book, maybe they didn't want the spinoff. And so we didn't order as many of, you know, the spinoff and the other spinoff. Uh, so, you know, G.I. Joe fans, if you feel like, you know, this this is sort of bummer news about, you know, your favorite toy 80s nostalgia thing. Uh, companies are always sort of thinking about maxing out their their brands and and. You know, it's the stores, it's the readers who have to, it's like, well, how much money can I spend on G.I. Joe or Black Panther spinoffs this month? So ironically, canceling the current book, relaunching as America's Elite with the name change, that made it very clear as a jumping on point for readers back in 2005. But for then, not too, even too long after that, it started to become quite confusing for people who wanted to jump onto the Devil's Due era of books because you've got then these different titles of uh, of uh, for for the reading order. You've got the the original trade paperbacks and, and books. You've got America's Really Elite. Then you've got Disavowed and Disavowed America's Elite, and you know just starting to get very confusing. So at the time, very clear. Subsequently, the change of name making things a little less clear. Uh, the the other thing I was going to just note, um, I found a quote to back up the point about uh, editorial as well. So Blaylock um, says, when a major change in the direction of the book is decided on a company-wide level, though, and a change in creative needs to happen, editorial always gets more hands-on because it's very important to make sure that the new writer can start off with as clean a slate as possible. So between the lines, he's saying, I had to do some writing with Jurwa to clear the decks for Casey. Yeah. Yeah. So actually getting into these two books, 40 and 41, they came from the creative team of Story, Brandon Jurwa. Brandon, Brandon Jurwa. Pencils, Tim Seeley. Inks, Corey Hampshire. Colours, Brett R. Smith. Letters, Robin Spear of Dreamer Designs. Editor, Mark Powers. And now joined by Associate Editor, Mike O'Sullivan from Issue 41. Graphic Design, Mike Norton. Production Assistants, Sean Dove. And Military Consultation, Andrew Swenson. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Covered Issue 40 is a classically familiar comic book cover uh, trope. And I mean Mm. that in a good way. It is the uh, heroic character holding the body of someone important to them, or maybe an innocent bystander, and back arched, looking up and yelling in anger and or sorrow. Uh, It very slightly recalls Michelangelo's sculpture, the Pietà, uh, but it's more immediately recalling a couple of Spider-Man covers where he's holding Gwen Stacy or something. So mm-hmm. this is Destro 
holding the Baroness. And what's remarkable, I like this cover. It's, it's, it's a nice drawing, uh, nice pencils by Tim Seeley, who I'm often very hard on. What grabs me about this cover is it's a good composition, right? There are no sort of uh, weak negative spaces or sort of mystery crops or bits of debris that I don't understand. And uh, Val Staples, whose coloring I do like in comics on X-Men comics and He-Man comics and Criminal and here occasionally in G.I. Joe, uh, the whole thing is doused in orange. And this would look very different on a shelf next to a lot of other uh, comics for that month. And interestingly, the Baroness does not appear in this issue at all. Yeah. She's referred to, and, and Destro is in... Uh, one panel and uh, two panels and his helmet is in a third panel so <laughs> this cover is very much acting as a question for the outside and the inside answers it and a a proper tease for readers and also for um catalogs that, where the image is going to be shown ahead of time so stores mm. can order it in advance so uh, and and the green, the glowing green of Destro's eyes, I don't think they should glow because this isn't like Megatron in the Transformers cartoon in 1984, like, I will have my revenge. And then his eyes glow red and the episode is over. Uh, <laughs> I don't think a regular person's eyes should glow, but I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll give I'll give it to the team of uh, Seely, uh, Pepoy and Staples. Yeah, this yeah, the scene def scene definitely doesn't happen in this current issue, or any, even indeed the the previous issue, where the Baroness is sort of seen. Well, the Baroness is believed to be on a plane that explodes and, and dies. So it's more, I guess, thematically talking to that idea of the the tragedy of the loss of Baroness, isn't it? There's also a cover B, a second printing, which is takes quite an unusual uh, approach which because it is exactly the same cover to a but just cropped so there is a, a zoom uh, on on destro sort of uh, crying out uh, not not an approach that you would see very often on a variant cover oh yeah 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 we are uh, we are just zoomed in on uh, destro and uh, and we we see just a tiny bit of uh, the Baroness's sort of shoulder and uh, torso on the bottom left. But otherwise, it's the same color treatment, uh, the same copy, the same words yeah. on the bottom. Mm. And interesting, yeah. And both of these covers have uh, an overlap of the, the foreground character and the logo, which must give it extra points, Tim. <sighs> yes. If if I recall, it's, it's in the IDW era that that doesn't really happen and should. And I, th I think the Devil's Due era has had a, an easier time of it. But yes. Um, and speaking of issue 41, yes. Um, cover to issue 41 is great. I almost thought, looking at it, I thought, is that Stefano Caselli? Because there's something really aggressive and textured and a little mannered about the clothing folds of Cobra Commander's uh, cape and cowl, uh, sort of more drawn and rendered than I'm used to seeing from Tim Seeley. And I think what's really happening here is Val Staples is really going to town, adding some lights and darks in his colors that sort of look like um, additional decisions in the penciling and inking. So this cover mm. is only two colors. There's red, 
and then there's the grays of Cobra Commander. And there are some very, very light grays, which get to almost white. And then there are some, some blacks for uh, little bits of shadow. Um, there's the red logo uh, on his mask, his chest. There's the red sort of rain or speed line, laser beam, dramatic color effects. And the uh, his his hands uh, it's, so we're we're looking up at Cobra Commander. His arms are up. His eyes are closed. He's leaning back. His hands are up, in in victory. Whereas you know that Destro is upset in the previous cover. You know here that Cobra Commander is uh, victorious. The rain begins. Yes, yes. Which is also part of why I think it's rain because I I see that word and I think of the other spelling yeah. and meaning of that word. The pun. only the only little misstep uh, of this cover is the. Um, Sort of how perfectly the Devil's Do logo, the circle, lands on Cobra Commander's hand. Uh, but points for having his other arm in front of the uh, the G.I. Joe logo. Oh, also, um, I wish the uh, the N of the word rain didn't cover the signature. Yeah. I feel like when when that kind of thing happens, the per- the designer who's putting the, the the copy on the cover should like send a message over to the colorist and say, "Hey, can you move the signature up?" Or do I have your permission to move the signature up? Uh, but this is a great cover, and this this is this is right up there with the J. Scott Campbell and Mike Zek covers. It is it is powerful. It's dramatic. It pops from a distance. Uh, it's a great drawing, uh, great color. It manages to both be sort of the like generic pinup cover of the like Bill Jemis, Joe Casada, Ultimate Spider-Man era of Marvel you know, 2000 to 2003 when covers just had to have one character in it, like a pinup with, with, with no story. Uh, and yet also it actually does reflect the interior of the issue. Very good. Yeah. I agree with all of that. One of my very favorite covers from the devil's due era. Great stuff. Let's have a recap of what happens in these two issues with a plot breakdown. Following the destruction of the pit and Fort Huachuca, the US military retaliates with a tactical nuclear strike on Cobra Island, with Barrel Roll tasked with dropping the bomb. Cobra Commander flees to the monolith base at Bad Hikistan, leaving the traitorous Coil army behind to die in the blast as retribution for their prior treachery. Barrel Roll's brother Thomas Stahl commits to Cobra and becomes Blackout. Cobra Commander and Dr. Mindbender test the Tempest, a weather dominator machine which rains down a deadly Death Angel virus rain as a deadly proof of concept on the citizens of Jejeska. Dr. Cassandra Knox replaces Dr. Mindbender on Cobra's high command and Mindbender is shot and left to bleed out on the floor. The Joes invade the new Cobra stronghold in Bad Higistan. The small team attack on several fronts and invade the base with comparative ease. Dr. Mindbender helps the Joes to neutralise the Tempest device in his final moments, while Blackout finds himself unable to attack the Joes as he overhears his brother's heroism. Cobra Command slip away with Zartan reappraising his loyalties and Destro's faction escaping from imprisonment. Meanwhile, G.I. Joe's Iceland outpost is attacked by Overlord, Scanner sacrifices himself, setting a self-destruct to the base to save Snake Eyes, Duke and Scarlet, who are locked in a bomb shelter. A few days later, a rescue team recovers them. 
In another subplot, the mysterious group called the Red Shadows makes its first appearance. General Joe Colton meets with Hector Ramirez. They are both killed by the Red Shadows leader, a person that Joe Colton was familiar with. Finally, as Cobra Commander and the Crimson Twins hide in the caves of Badhikistan Mountains, they are found by a female Red Shadow who informs them that they have liquidated all of Cobra's assets before she opens fire on them. Um, Mark, you mentioned uh, Beryl Roll's brother here, Blackout. Mm-hmm. He is He's not named, correct? He's not given his codename. Ooh, I thought that maybe he was. Um, uh, I didn't notice it on my read-through. All right, so I'm look. I'm flipping through 41, and co-commander, uh, the, uh, the next kill is yours, Mr. Stahl. Be prepared. So that's that's 41, and then I don't think anyone is talking to him. Uh, Mr. Stahl, go ahead of me and make sure my personal extraction procedures. Da, da, da. I don't think anyone calls him. Okay. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. You know, if if in the next issue someone's gonna, you know, I dub you blackout or Megatron, I dub you black. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. Let us know if we have missed it. If in Jura's mind he already has the name, this is a problem because this character should be named. Uh, if it's going to be a story uh, moment where he's given the name in a future issue, that's fine. What struck me was uh, we've got, again, two issues that have just got a whole lot going on. And it's all really struck me again going through that plot breakdown. And that's that's a you know slimmed down plot breakdown, you know, and, and we compare that to kind of some of the simplicity of Hammer's most recent issues. You know, a, a cloned Genghis Khan breaks out of his tube, fights the G.I. Joe team. Uh, defeats them to and and they retreat to to escape you know you could kind of summarize it in a single line very hard to do that with with these issues there's a lot of characters a lot of moving parts and uh, a lot of high stakes in these two issues we've got the the nukon cobra islands you know what gets bigger than a, a tactical nuke uh, well, more potentially is bigger is the the Tempest device. The we finally find out exactly what this is. It's the a device that seemingly would create rain, and when combined with a, a deadly virus, that rain can uh, exterminate a populace. Sort sort of melt them. Yeah, pretty horrific stuff. Well, in some recent episodes of our show, you've been encouraging us to start with something positive, mm-hmm. and. I have I have already given my positive, which is that I really like these two covers. And <laughs> I really like the cover to forty one, mm-hmm. and I don't have anything else positive to say about these issues. I think you're not trying hard enough, Tim. I I enjoyed <sighs> them. I enjoyed them. I mm, I um uh I <laughs> um I think a lot of things don't work in these two issues and uh okay i'll start with something small and petty uh what is up with general ray's hair you're obsessed with this man's hair tim it's really (laughs) i mean i'm obviously jealous because he's in his 50s and he has a lot of hair and i don't although i'd like to think i've i've made this look work for me in the last 10 years and um but if he's got a buzz and he's got like a lot of coverage 
I feel like there need to be some lines in there, but it's 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 drawn as if it's like painted on or like a like an adhesive. Yeah, just just imagine, Tim, that it's uh, not hair and it's just a very uh, tightly fitting, stylized helmet. So weird. But he's got a little bit of receding on the left and right of his uh, upper forehead, but then he's got these sort of uh sideburns that a, a younger cooler person would have and it yeah it, to me, it sort of, cut your finger on those sideburns it it sort of speaks to the like he's old and he's young he's cool and he's not cool it's like the shoulder uh armor of his costume anyway so that that's my that's <laughs> that's that I, I have a note here right this is is this page one of issue yes Page one. The first thing I wrote for this issue, what is up with Ray's hair? Um, <laughs> but uh, things things get, uh, there, there are bigger stakes here. So in issue 40, I, I, I greatly disagree with the decision to and the execution of the Joes dropping a tactical nuke mm. on, on a, A, any place on Earth, B, a sovereign nation. Cobra Island doesn't belong to the U.S. And yes, we we could have some discussion about how the Joes are in, you know, America's in a state of war against Cobra. And that's that's ongoing through the whole G.I. Joe storyline. But specifically, two U.S. military bases were just destroyed by Cobra. Well, as a comparison, Mark, after three important locations in America... I should say two tactically and culturally important locations in America uh, were attacked by terrorists in 2001, and a third place was um, inadvertently attacked. Uh, it was it was a field. We didn't nuke Afghanistan or Iraq or Pakistan, but that that is a populace. That is a people. Whereas um, whereas I guess they were you attack the 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 attack in in real life was by a specific you know subset of. Uh, terrorists where it's so so it's hard to say you know attack you know drop a nuke on a particular country and you're not going to have any collateral damage whereas me, every everyone on cobra island is allied to cobra more or less aren't they uh yeah but there's fallout and there's this there's this general agreement in the world in the last 75 years that we do not activate nuclear devices. And Brandon Jurwa's script has this introduced too abruptly with little emotional reaction from characters mm-hmm. and no discussion of stakes. And I'm okay with someone who hasn't served in the military writing a, an action comic, a military comic. I'm okay with people who haven't been police officers writing detective stories or crime stories or police stories. This this reads as a very young person not doing any research or just sort of thinking about uh, the the history and the scope. It's like, we don't drop nukes. We don't. Mm. I, I know that this comic is like one step in the future or one step into sci-fi or one step into uh, a heightened reality. Oh, man, I I don't like that decision. Uh, it, it just reads as very off heavy-handed yeah but and but sorry not just not just heavy-handed but um cheap and this is already in two issues where lots of characters are killed and 
So it's a it's a double whammy for me. And do you remember, Tim? It was um, it's not the first time that we've seen this in the Devil's Due era because there was also this threat of a nuclear strike on Cobra Island in the versus Transformers story that uh, was written by um, Josh Blaylock. Uh, I had forgotten that, so thank you for the reminder. We did review that uh, <laughs> in an episode. Uh, I don't think I brought that up. Uh, hi, Jay. Jay was in that episode. I would uh, I would counter by saying that is much more of a sci-fi story because there are aliens. There are alien robots. Mm. And, uh, and the, dif- the difference there was that I guess that was seen you know, much more of a, as a bad thing. And the Joes were sort of against a ticking clock to try and use other means to defeat the the enemy with with that and avoid the need for the for the need. and not not that the writers of Transformers stories ever sort of use as much power as is invested in the Transformers themselves and their weapons, but if you read the toy tech specs, like like Megatron can just like make explosions. It's just a power of his. And I forget the scale of them, but they're really big. And so uh, anyway, uh, back to issue 40 and 41. I think the page after the bomb has dropped where the Joes are starting to react is a a good start. But Mm -hmm. the scene where it's, oh man, it's page two, right? Like uh, Shipwreck and Mercer are bickering and I don't like it, but that's okay. Right. It's like good, good try. And very abruptly, Ray says, the Joint Chiefs have called for an action that, ha- that hasn't been taken in decades, and we have a duty to carry out their orders. Cobra will be dealt with once and for all. We're going to drop a tactical nuke on Cobra Island. And the scene cuts to Cobra Island. And mm-hmm. I, I gasped, like, oh, no, no, no. No, this needs a page of the Joes in that scene reacting. Like, uh, I'm sorry, General Ray, did I? Did I hear you correctly? We're dropping a a nuclear device on Cobra Island? Like, you heard me right, Shipwreck. Like, whoa, no. Oh, goodness, no. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's the, 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 the drama of that scene is so um, deflated and cut off. It's as if he said, we are dropping a regular mega heavy bomb. Mm. But like, no, a nuke is a different scale. Anyway, we can move on because uh, you'll, just, you'll just hear the like, musical concern like no in my voice so on on this theme on the destruction of cobra island uh, i saw a parallel there to the creation of cobra island so if you remember back in issue 41 strategic diplomacy gi joe essentially was tricked into doing cobra's work uh, for them and i think originally there was talk of dropping a a nuke, uh, but instead they um, uh, instead they came up with an alternative plan, which was to build up lots of conventional explosives, set them off, but that triggered a uh, uh, an earthquake, which created Cobra Island, um, which was what Cobra had planned all along. And yeah, Cobra lost because uh, uh, Cobra Island was created, and, and uh, Cobra took that as their base. It's almost the reverse this time round that cobra have tricked gi joe into launching a uh, large explosion which destroys cobra island and the traitorous inhabitants that are left there um, while cobra proper have uh, have escaped to an alternative location 
that is a nice bookend. And that Cobra Commander is tricking and trapping all the traitors onto one place, into one place. He and the loyalists all leave, and it's the Joes who do his dirty work for him. That's a great, deliciously evil Cobra Commander thing to do. I'm so distracted by the unthoughtfulness of the portrayal of the the weapon and its scale and its effect. And even, you know, I... I I have been hard on Seeley's drawing and I've been hard on Seeley's uh, storytelling. The actual page where it's it's two pages before the big explosion, right? Cover Commander says, this is the end. This is the beginning. The end of betrayal and treachery. And in that second panel, when he's saying the end of, tre- the end of betrayal and treachery, it's a uh, very calm, uh, steady, straight shot. It's It's technically one point... Uh, linear perspective, but there are no, well, there aren't, there aren't many uh, uh, vanishing uh, lines. So we could basically call it optical perspective. There's just things in front of other things to show that they are closer or further, but there are, oh, you know, 15 coil soldiers. They're all just standing. They're all turning their heads a little bit to the left to this giant window. Through it, we see some clouds and three little somethings, which are approaching jets. And I guess they start to realize that three jets are coming up them and they put two and two together that the speech that Cobra Commander is giving them is that they're in trouble and they're doomed. And then on the bottom of the next page, they're running around. Ah, aye, oh God, he's he's insane. Even that doesn't sort of work for me because it's like, I actually don't care that two panels worth of sort of anonymous coil soldiers. It's like, yep, good job, Cobra Commander. Take some say, take some chess pieces off the board. Back to you, Mark. Okay, so that's uh, that, that's guess the main A story uh, for for issue uh, forty. Uh, let's let's sort of follow that that through into forty one. So Cobra has relocated into Badikistan. They've tested their weapon with fairly gruesome uh, results, and and then. They're attacked by um, this small GI Joe squad from uh, various angles. There's uh, they're being hit from uh, land. I was gonna, I'd like to say land, sea, and air, but it's sort of sea, air, air, and more air because you've got you've got a sea squads, you've got a helicopter squad, you've got a parachute squad, and then you've got barrel roll who's uh, attacking the tempest device in in again in the air. They, yeah, this small squad sort of attacks with pretty uh, effective results. It, it, it sort of, uh, and I, you know, I wonder where, whether this is part of the, the, you know, the change in direction editorial. But Cobra, after you know this grand scheme that has been built up over all of this time, the, you know, the threat of this Tempest device, these clever machinations to to sort of get GI Joe to destroy Cobra Island. You know, an almost ten man squads then then takes them down. Yeah, uh, issue forty one, page eleven. Tomax and Zamot run in. Cobra Commander, we have several critical situations. The Joes have managed to wipe out the bulk of our air and sea forces with two strikes. What? They have the bulk. What? It did was ninety three percent of all of Cobra those coil guys that just got destroyed on Cobra Island. Like, wait, 10 Joes with, like, one helicopter and, like, one shark and 
I, I feel like stuff is missing. Mm. And uh, I like the surprise that Cobra Commander in these two issues goes from being the the greatest villain in history with this incredible weapon, these two incredible weapons, and and he's going to blackmail the entire planet and be in charge and kill a lot of people to being taken down completely by the Joes and then maybe even killed by this surprise new character in a cave uh, who maybe also kills Tom Axon's Amon. Oh my goodness. But the the sort of Jirwa keeping track of numbers of characters and sort of numbers of vehicles, uh, maybe I'm not doing my part as reader. I'm not sort of keeping score and maybe it actually is all sort of explained but i feel like we lost a bunch of armament and defenses mm. somewhere and it it's sort of it became very easy in half an issue for the joes to entirely beat cobra yeah the, their entire sea forces is kind of on this oil platform or whatever that is attacked by the whale or whatever and the air force is is sort of on the runway at the monolith base um, and, and shot at by a surprise attack from the, the G.I. Joe helicopter. But doesn't that Air Force look like four Rattlers or something? Yeah, I mean, ev- exactly everything that we know about the size of the size and variety of the Cobra armaments, it doesn't doesn't seem like that would be it un- unless, you know, in this in this rush to to move to this new base, they've only got a seemingly quite small capability to that they can draw on locally Hmm. there's a there's a panel in issue 41 uh this this will this will be i'll i'll say one more thing about um tim seeley's artwork in these two issues and then i'll then i'll i'll just talk about other stuff (laughs) in issue 41 uh page 10 the first panel it's uh, a close-up of general ray his head and shoulders he's in the cockpit of this helicopter and there's a big disconnect between what the script is calling for and how the dialogue and the lettering treatment do support that and how the artwork do not support that. This guy's helicopter is going down and I think he might die or get his legs shattered and, you know, fly through the windshield or get, you know, burned. And he says, hold on to something. And Seeley draws a very, a very calm General Ray. Yes, his teeth are gritted, but there's he's not pushing against the, the stick. He's not pulling against the stick. He's not twisting. He's not leaning forward. He's not uh, bracing against his, uh, his, his, his seatbelt, his, uh, his restraint harness. It's not, uh, to use a film term, it's not a Dutch angle. Seeley hasn't tipped the view sort of at, at a diagonal. And as a comparison... And this isn't a fair comparison because this isn't quite a crash. But look at the cover to G.I. Joe issue number 70 from the Marvel run, right? It's a different scene. That's Wild Bill in the cockpit. And there's a there's a gun pointed, a pistol pointed at his head. And uh, Ron Wagner, in drawing this cover, you could push, there could be more tension in that. Sort of the, the Mike Zek version of that cover, I can imagine. Even more sort of tense muscles. Um, but I've always been worried about Wild Bill on the cover to issue 70. And I'm not worried about Ray in this panel in issue 41. And then three panels later, he's completely fine. He's running away from the uh, helicopter, which has just crashed. 
uh, although I guess it sort of skidded and didn't like crumple and break apart and explode. And that's fine. Like, you know, Jurwa can decide that it's sort of a, a good crash and not a bad crash, but it, it, it speaks to this sort of the, the stakes feel all inconsistent uh, in this story where it's very easy for someone to show up for a panel and gut someone or shoot them or blow them up. But uh, there isn't room for sort of the the realism of, of of injury and risk and violence and and then going back to the you know the stakes of uh, the very large weapon deployed in the previous issue. So that combined with uh, how crowded the story is, a lot of characters and action and scene changes that you referred to, and then also a couple uh, for me real missteps in the dialogue, which I can point out in a moment. Uh, these are the things that come together for me where I don't connect to these issues at all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right, Tim. So let's let's follow the the kind of the plot through. We've we've got Mindbender being being shot and being left for dead, helping uh the Joes in his final moments. We've got Blackout or Thomas Stall not turning full heel and, and not taking that kill shot that that could have finished the joe's mission uh the successful uh, defeat of of the tempest device by a barrel roll smashing into it with his aircraft and ejecting at the the last minute and tying up that plot in a relatively neat bow then uh then we've got kind of the b and c stories move on to those so we've got uh, a return of scanner scott sturgis from issue 26 in iceland it doesn't feel like that this storyline is necessarily particularly essential to the to the plot because given everything that happened then perhaps this could have been put to, to one side so yeah the the attacked by uh, overlord explode the base overlord and scanner seem to be killed and the rest of the joes are are rescued possibly it's needed as a reminder that you know snake eyes scarlet duke are elsewhere otherwise engaged and not part of the main story in previous episodes i commented and maybe you also did and i think jay cordray our co-host of previous episodes also did that uh when the green shirts showed up it seemed like they were showing up so that they could later be killed and the the scanner stuff here, I see the the dramatic attempt to have his uh, death mean something, and I guess I'd rather it's him than one of the other marquee Joes in the scene. But uh, it's it's so abrupt, you know. Like I wasn't quite sure what had happened on the final panel in the final panel of issue forty because I I don't see Scarlet and Overlord in the same space. She's looking somewhere, I'm not sure where, and then we see Overlord, but I don't I don't know that they're in the same room or how much distance is between them. Sort of not sure what Overlord has done to Scanner because he's got a little blood dripping from his finger and there's a little, I mean, I, I understand from the context and I'm not looking for Scanner to be like facing us with a giant wound on him, but it's sort of abrupt. And again, like, uh, I don't know that this needed sort of another villain uh, another character, it's like, not only does Scanner come back from previous issues, so does Overlord. The, he, uh, I wanted to point out two bits of dialogue. Oh, this is in issue 40. Ray gives this speech 
to the Joes on page two. So the second page of these two issues that we're talking about, uh, Ray says, he, he, he breaks up the, the argument, the fight between Shipwreck and Mercer. He says, I can appreciate the tension you're all feeling. You've watched innocent people die and seen your home destroyed. You also have a new commanding officer. You don't, and you don't know him or trust him. Times are bad. But we are all that's left of G.I. Joe. We can't afford dissent and mistrust. All right, on the surface, I like that speech. But this line right here, you also have a new commanding officer and you don't know him or trust him. That's not the way you'd say it. You, you'd say something like, uh, we haven't worked together or you just you would just stop. Uh, you have a new commanding officer. You wouldn't actually say the words, you don't know him or trust him. That feels like that's that's sort of the writing you do when you expect all of your readers to expect that this guy might actually be a secret agent. He's a Cobra bad guy, that it's too on the nose. It's not um, diplomatic enough. And then a couple pages later, Joe Colton is meeting Hector Ramirez in at a some kind of restaurant or diner in New York City. And Colton says, G.I. Joe is a highly classified operation, and I've been taken out of the loop. If you're looking for a story, he says this right as the waitress is bringing him coffee. Mm. Now, I understand that, you know, Flint wrote a book, and Roadblock is a chef, and G.I. Joe is public knowledge or more public knowledge in this universe. But if you ever talk to someone who, like, works in government or uh, for the CIA— when you start talking about something that's classified, even if you're not going to be specific, you get a little quiet, you look left and right, and you, you, you sort of don't finish the sentence right when the waitress comes up. And so this might just be a small little you know, mis miscommunication between sort of what the script is calling for and uh, where Seeley uh, is like drawing, you know, panel two. But like, uh, it's like... You also probably wouldn't sit in one of those booths where there's people sat behind you. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe maybe you you and I have learned all that spy craft from you know, <laughs> yeah. like James Bourne, uh, James, uh, yeah, J James Jason Bourne, Jason Bourne movies. And then at the bottom of this page, uh, there's a storytelling thing I found a little confusing. The panel on the bottom left, Hector Ramirez is sitting in the taxi with his leg out, so he's like getting into the taxi. And then the next panel, something is exploding. And there's a person who's the exact same size as Hector Ramirez. And I think that's Colton. Mm -hmm. But it sort of looked like that's Ramirez. And for a second, I thought, oh, did the taxi blow up around Ramirez and it throws him away from the explosion? And I'm, I'm probably like looking too hard. And this is where, Mark, you say, like, no, Tim, that's clearly Colton. Ramirez is in the explosion. It's clear from the context. Yeah, it's not it, that explosion isn't necessarily the greatest depiction of an, an explosion. Explosion, right. but it's clear from the context what is meant to be happening. You know, including the... so. Um, and then there's a bit of dialogue which I really wanted this scene to work. Uh, this is still in issue forty. So, Cobra Commander approaches the the man who will be blackout and. Uh, there's a really helpful line from Major Blood who says, um, <clears throat> He's a Joe trainee, or so he claims. The interrogator has already cleared him, which leads me to believe he might actually be telling the truth. 
So, okay, he's already been cleared by the interrogator, which might mean a very heavy interrogation. I'm not sure. And Cobra Commander has never met this guy, this sort of former Joe recruit. And they have a three-panel conversation. And Cobra Commander says, do you want to be on my side? And, you know, I, I have sympathy for Jurwa because it, it sort of seems like Blaylock said, oh, sorry, you have two months to wrap up this story. You thought you had 10 or 30 issues. You have you have three issues and you have four issues and two of them will be double-sized. Sorry. And you're done. But uh, Cobra Commander seems really familiar with and trusting of this guy he's never met. And also, Cobra Commander is really important and dangerous and distrustful and brilliant. And he's talking to this guy like this is their like 16th conversation. Like, uh, I think finally I know that you're on our side, Blackout. And then eight pages later, uh, just a couple hours later, they're getting off of a cargo plane and this guy that Cobra Commander just met, and yeah, he's been cleared by the interrogator, is standing right next to Cobra Commander, behind him, with a machine gun. And then also in the next issue, in issue 41, Cobra Commander says, like, 10 minutes later, like, all right, Blackout, uh, go on this mission, kill some Joes if you see them. And Blackout is just standing there with a machine gun. And there, there isn't really a comparison in... A real American hero G.I. Joe comics, you know, the Marvel run or the continued IDW run, because we haven't seen a Joe become a Cobra or a Cobra become a Joe like, I mean, Storm Shadow, right? But well, maybe that's the comparison, right? And, you know, Mercer as a character type uh, also hasn't shown up in the, the Larry Hama G.I. Joe. But um, there is a bit of a comparison in the animated series from the 80s. There's a two-parter in season one in 1985 called The Traitor, where Dusty leaves G.I. Joe and joins Cobra. And it's great. It's it, The writing is so great. There's a scene where it establishes the problem. Dusty's mom can't pay her bills. Tomax and Zamot meet him at a, a bar and taunt him, but offer him money. If only he'll give uh, Cobra some secrets. And he says, well, just some small ones. And then he's on trial because he's been found out and Cobra rescues him. Cobra crashes the like transport bus before or after the trial and takes him away. And the Joes think, oh no, our guy is gone and he is a traitor. And in part two, there's a there are one or two great scenes where Cobra Commander is talking with Dusty and he's really happy that he's turned him. And you're sort of waiting for Dusty to say, uh, I'm, I'm a double agent. I'm actually a Joe after all. Take that. Uh, Chrome Dome, Fang Face, Punch. Um, and so the comparison actually that I do see to the Larry Hama G.I. Joe is in the current issues, the the newest issue, 297 and like one or two issues ago, where Cobra Commander is sort of being too nice and too trusting, where he's um, talking with tourists at his casino on Cobra Island. And he's just in the casino, like giving chips and like dinner tickets to random civilians who are gambling at his casino. And I thought, that's funny. Also, this guy has armies and pistols and he kills people. This feels a little weird. So here I see Cobra Commander in the Jurwa run, just, just like talking to this guy. It's like, oh, hey, Stahl, how you doing? Do you want a gun? Go kill some Joes. I've never met you. So in uh, in the conclusion, almost the conclusion to uh, 41, 
we see Joe Colton shot dead by this mysterious new character in red, who we think must be related to the Red Shadows, because we know that next issue is uh, the Dawn of the Red Shadows. And uh, just yeah, two pages on from his appearance, there is a giant double page advert saying G.I. Joe, Cobra, no one is a safe, the Red Shadows. So not, not too much of a, a mystery as to, to what faction he belongs to. But yeah, poor Joe Colton. Yeah. So, you know, th- these these two issues, I, I don't like the nuke. There's too many characters and too many stories, and there's some arts and dialogue and scripting misfires for me. But sort of the icing on the cake, uh, in this case, a cake I don't want, is <laughs> the the killing off of many characters. And I want to draw a comparison for everyone. Issue 155 of G.I. Joe is the final issue of a long-running G.I. Joe story. And in it, the writer manages to kill off no one. The Joes don't kill Cobra Commander and have a definitive victory. Uh, They don't kill off everyone but Cobra Commander, and he gets away, and that sort of promises more stories. Cobra Commander doesn't manage to kill off a favorite character like Snake Eyes or, or Stalker. It's a story that's about what it is to be uh, a soldier, both sort of generally and also like in G.I. Joe. And certainly Jur was not trying to end his story with one self-contained issue, the way that 155, it's by itself. It doesn't wrap up anything from, you know, some previous issues. Jurwa is trying specifically to wrap up several uh, plots. But if someone is ever going to pick up the Marvel run with say, in issue 156. Isn't it nice that all the characters that were in issue 155 are available? And whoever's going to pick up G.I. Joe after 40, 41, 42, 43, we've already said goodbye to several characters, you know, around issue 25 and maybe the Baroness two issues ago. But I don't know that anyone's mourning Scanner, but there are so many characters that are taken off the board here. If it's like a fake out, like, oh, Colton's not really dead. It's like, well, this is happening too often. And if it's not, and these are all sort of actual um, final deaths, it is either cynical or thin. And I think Jurawa could end his run. It's like, yeah, I get it. You want to show that Cobra Commander is the worst, but actually there's someone even worse. And Man, you must be amazing if you can sort of sneak into Cobra Commander's base and point blank shoot at him and Tomax and Zaymont. And I don't actually think Cobra Commander's dead. I think we'll see him in the next issue or in a couple of issues. Mm-hmm. But um, killing a bunch of characters on your way out feels like you're not putting the toys back on the shelf for the next kid who's going to play with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like you are breaking a couple of them to show how cool your final game with these toys is. So uh, a friend of mine many years ago, and I think, I don't know if we're talking about G.I. Joe or sort of regular Marvel in DC, but he said, he was sort of saying this to me, but he was sort of speaking to the world of writers. He said, don't don't kill characters, you know, like Death of Superman or like Death of Wolverine or uh, Death of Captain America. Like 
you know, in superhero stuff, it, it can make some really exciting, like three-year stories. Like, you know, what do you do without Superman? You have no Superman and then some imposters and then he comes back. And that's that's a fun uh, cycle. But you can't do that more than once. Although they just did it again. And, you know, with G.I. Joe, it, it's like, oh, really don't do this. Because if it's like, well, we've, we can clone Dr. Mindbender and we can clone Serpentor. Um, but it's it's much harder as a writer to not kill characters. It's like, okay, how do you raise the stakes and create drama for your reader? It's really easy to take a character and kill them and say to the reader, this is a big deal, right? That character's dead. And in the letters page of these two issues, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, an- the answer to some of the letters or the introduction is like, we take, we take character deaths really seriously. I think they thought about it a lot. I still think they made the wrong call. Yeah, that letter in the back of 41 from Kevin Gill, I thought was very good. He said, I feel the killing off of underused Joe characters with, without any sort of character development is a bad move. I don't claim to be a writer, so I'm not saying I can do a better job, but this is just a request. Before you kill another hardball or tracker, give them more than a page to develop a little. These are basically virgin characters aside from their file cards, and they were tr- basically treated like green shirts. Develop the obscure characters before you kill them, because in some cases, that will be the only chance that they will have had to be in the comic. And you you could sort of take the logic of that request a step further, because I think the devil's due response might be, it's like, well, yeah, with Scanner, right? It's like, no, he had a whole issue to himself where he was this character, and then we brought him back. So he has had some development, but... So for every character who gets one page as per this request, I I want a whole issue or I want them to become a, maybe not a stalker or a, a, like a roadblock character who's in the whole run, but a ripcord, you know, someone who's in 10 or 15 issues and then comes back once or twice, a hundred issues later. And the natural logical conclusion of this request, give them at least a page, not one panel. Give them at least an issue, not one page. Give them at least several issues, not one issue. Give them at least, uh, you know, a year or two is, no, just don't kill them. Mm-hmm. I think I think I feel differently about this now in my 40s than I did in my 20s when these comics were coming out. At the time, and I wasn't reading, you know, this run, I, I had left the book around issue 10. But I remember, you know, they killed a Joe and someone reading, reading the book and they told me and I thought, oh, uh. I don't like that, but I think right now talking to this microphone uh, and you, Mark, it sort of hurts me more, even though, you know, this is like a pocket continuity that doesn't, uh, quote, count, has been disavowed, you know, because I see that it's like every character is someone's favorite character. And if you kill that character, you you disappoint that reader. Yeah. Yeah. Don't devils do. Don't kill characters. (laughs) How about this? Imagine if. Uh, who was it who died in issue 25? Was it uh, Flash or something? Uh, a few people, yeah. Flash, uh, Chuckles, um, probably more that I'm not that I'm not remembering immediately off the top of my head. Okay. So Chuckles had had the four issue frontline, frontline arc. Mm-hmm. And did you say Flash? Flash? Flash had basically done nothing in the Devil's Due Run. He'd probably shown up for a couple panels. But, you know, people remember him from 82. One of the first toys. He's in the comic for the first year or two. Imagine if in the entire Devil's Due run, no one had died and they kill one Joe. 
in these two issues that we read for this episode, or one Joe in the, the final two issues for our next episode. Maybe it's uh, Scanner, or maybe it's Joseph Colton. That would hit so much harder. But mm-hmm. now you sort of expect it. Like, oh yeah, Devils do. They're, they're killing a lot of Joes. Yeah. Okay. So. so so I think we're probably done talking the main uh, points of the, of the book. Should we have a look at some I Spies? Yeah. I spy with my little eye. So uh, here's here's one for you, Tim. There's a Toxo Viper doing a Toxo Viper thing. They're handling a Death Angel virus in a canister. Yeah. Is this so? So help me out, because they they look like. They look like Toxo Vipers. It looks like a sort of a, a devil's Jewified Toxo Viper version two. Okay, and they and their color scheme, it's not a garish green, and there's some sort of gray. Yeah, like slightly more muted kind of versus the 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 kind of the toys. So the green is toned down a bit, the the blues become a little bit more like grays, the red of the mask becomes a little bit more like orange. Um, I like that. Uh, is it possible that there is a recolor of these toys from around 2003 or four? Uh, no, we've got Toxo Viper 1, 1988, Toxo Viper 2, where they sort of become this, this green look. And then we don't see them again until 2014 with the version 3, the modern era look. So so this is uh, the thing that Devils do, uh, do, which is to kind of update a, a look and sort of tweak it slightly. Okay. Um, and I spy, uh, this is an issue 40. On that same page, uh, two panels down, we see some Cobra, I'll call them Vipers, and they've got big astronaut suits. Mm. And they only appear in these two panels at the bottom of this page. And I guess they most resemble the, the Star Brigade Battletech Bat. <laughs> the bat with two A's, the... Battle Android is it astronomical trooper? Uh-huh. Yeah, um, where it's the much chunkier black and white suit with a, a red sort of visored uh, bat. And this is not that. This I think this is these are men, not robots, and they're in uh, much chunkier uh, astronaut suits. What you see when an astronaut is, is going to go on a spacewalk, not when they're just in their blue togs inside the space shuttle or space station. Uh, these two panels. Uh, whatever kind of I'll I'll call them shuttle vipers or ast- <laughs> astro astro viper version twos, uh, whatever they are, they're not named, which is which is a bummer, but it's fun to see them. That sort of uh, Jerwa or Seely just invented <laughs> invented a new Cobra soldier uh, for this quick appearance. Yeah, cool. I've got some uh, new toys. New toys. <laughs> So these are toy uh, tie-ins with new character look designs to uh, correspond to the toys that are out in the shops during this era. So we have a barrel roll appearing and uh, appearing as his V2 red costume variant. So we see a barrel roll in uh, a red costume in issue 40, as opposed to the blue that he had been appearing in one. I have got a Python Patrol Viper. I don't know if you picked up on that, the sort of the, the black looking Viper with the kind of the crisscrosses. 
which was a 2004 Venom vs. Valor variant of the Viper, although on the packaging cool. it didn't call it specifically Python Patrol, but it was obvious that's what it was. Is, is this where the, the visor is black? Uh, they have, yeah, a black visor and show up a few times. Tell me, what do we see? This is an issue 40. What do we see on page six? It's the page, It's the panel after Dr. Mindbender presses his hand uh, to activate the, um, uh, the, the weather control device. We see what sort of looks like a, a Cobra flight pod, a, a trouble bubble. I think we actually see three of them yeah. uh, in the panel. I think this but, is the Devil's Due version of the trouble bubble, which I believe appeared in the um, Battle Files. Okay, but not a toy. Not a toy. Okay. Uh, whereas Dr. Mindbender on that page in the white lab coat type look is a new toy. So um, they, I, th I think this might be the first time that he appears in this look in Devil's Due. Uh, I might be forgetting it if he appeared before, but um, but before I think he was in this sort of long kind of uh, purple type uh, suit uh, or, or coat. Um, so I think this is uh, this is his swan song in his new uh, toy costume um on that same page we've got uh major blood who is holding out his hand to touch the rain he had his hand cut off a couple of issues previously by general ray and uh richard straw on the boards pointed out that that is a nod to the speculation that people have had since his very first appearance as to what his right hand actually is is it a kind of an armored hand is it a robot hand now, given it has been chopped off, it must be now some sort of prosthetic. For the record, my brother and I, well, I know I assumed in, uh, in 83, 84 that it was, uh, it was a robot hand because we had seen the Empire Strikes Back. We'd, we'd seen someone get their hand chopped off and then they got a new hand, mm -hmm. a robot hand. Um, so new toys still. We've got blackouts uh, in his actual blackout costume. Uh, we have a in that 41 in that ocean attack from the Joes. We have a sting raider, which I think is a submarine. It's that thing with the kind of the, the jaws and the, sort of the blades on either sides. Uh, an interesting looking uh, craft. Uh, the name itself was reused as a completely different toy in 2009, which was they called the water moccasin, the sting raider for some weird reason. And uh, then my final new toy appearance is, is one that I'm not entirely sure about, but I'll point to just in case. Around this time, a toy set playset was released called Conquest of Cobra Mountain, which was a uh, mountainous cobra base, which I wonder whether that was the inspiration for this monolith base. Interesting. When I saw this, uh, and this is, this is a page turn, you're looking at the right page, you turn the page on the left page and Tomax and Zaymot and Mindbender are revealing this, this big craggy mountain with a big rock stone cobra and a, a garage door up a trail and a, a, some kind of landing strip with some cargo bay doors and some gun pods and then a, a thing on the bottom. How would you describe it? It's like what's on the top center of the, of the pterodrome. It's a, uh, like a missile silo, silo or something. Yeah, missile yeah. silo. Mm -hmm. um, but but I saw this, and I saw I immediately thought of Kenner's 1985 mask 
Boulder Hill playset, which is a sort of mountain with a giant boulder on the top and a, a gas station built into the side of it. But it's got this garage door and, you know, you sort of turn things and it's actually like little lasers. Uh, and I thought, hey, it's like, oh, it also sort of reminds me of a snake mountain from uh, He-Man and the Masters mm-hmm. of the Universe. Also in this issue, in issue 40, is a televiper doing a televiper thing. He's pointing his, it's not a gun, it's not a giant uh, laser beam or flashlight. It's a two-way video camera monitor thing. This is from the original action figure. Um, he's pointing it at Cobra Commander, so Cobra Commander can broadcast his his final threat to uh, all of the uh, traitorous uh, coil uh, soldiers that he's about to have destroyed. Hmm. Very good. He's shooting Cobra Commander's face at the uh, unsuspecting Cobra Coil forces. I didn't have any other ice spies, so we can move on. Um, Is uh, um, Dr. Dr. Knox, can you remind us? (laughs) Seriously, Tim? (laughs) Um, Didn't we just see her on uh, on a B cover of issue... 297 of, of yes, G.I. Joe, Real American Hero? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, okay, no, I I, I now remember that she's from, uh, is it 153, Shadow of the Bat? That's right, yeah. Okay, remind Okay, remind us when else we've seen her in the the Blaylock Jurawa comic. Oh, good question. Because they, they brought her back before this. Note to self, this is still not... Dr. Biggles Jones. She has brown <laughs> hair and a white lab coat. But if if Do- if Dr. Knox walks walked into the scene and put on Mindbender's doctor uh white lab coat, I might think it's Dr. Biggles Jones. So going by uh the excellent My Useless Knowledge website uh that has a profile for Dr. Knox, it looks like her appearances are limited to issue 153. 36, 37, 39, and 40. So we have just seen her in fairly fleeting glimpses over the past few issues. Okay. Do you have do you have more do you have more eye spies? Mm, no. Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. Okay, error detected. I've only got one error detected, which is very petty it's towards the middle of issue 40 general ray when he's on the flag on the left hand side of that double page uh, he's got no uh, you can see is the skin of his neck on the uh, following page it's been colored as if he's got some sort of roll neck that goes uh, goes up to his jaw so just over the course of a couple of panels uh, it changes but i feel very petty pointing out so, uh, very related, the first of my three error detecteds, issue 40, page 11. This is the right-hand page. In so the top two panels, Ray is on the flight deck. He's on the top of the flag. In the third panel, he's now underneath in an office, in a briefing room. And yet, mm-hmm. this third panel where he says, Eddie's men, and he's talking to, it looks like, it's barrel, barrel roll, um, and his hands are behind his back. The wall behind him is colored with the same sort of sky clouds as the panel above it, when when that background color should be the sort of metal wall 
of the next panel where Flint and Lady J are standing in front of the hologram topography. And then uh, uh, two error detectives for the following issue. Uh, issue 41 uh, on page 14, some Joes are attacking some Cobras. And one of the Cobras, uh, Televiper, says, Grenade Wakum. And one of these cool Vipers with the black uh, mask says, uh, Move in, bunker level two, they're headed your way. No one threw a grenade. <laughs> in the previous panel, yeah. uh, there are three Joes. Two, one of them is holding pistols. No one is throwing a grenade. And in that panel where the televiper is getting shot and an explosion is happening behind him, no one is inadvertently dropping a grenade. Oh, there's a, and, it looks like a grenade is going off in the background, though. It's just a... Yeah, but... Yeah, confused. It's like, okay. Um, I, I mean, geez, everyone, if you listen to our most recent episode of, of Talking Joe, where I uh, uh, talked about issue 297 and uh, uh, Genghis Khan is uh, grabbing some grenades off the back of a, a frag viper's backpack. You'll, you'll know that I'm, I'm really into grenades as an accessory, as a, as a specific item sculpted onto G.I. Joe torsos and legs, and with the frag viper figure itself as a tiny individual piece. So when someone says grenade in a G.I. Joe comic, I'm looking for the grenade. Um, <laughs> Where's uh, the freaking grenade here? Okay. Uh, and then uh, lastly... Page 21 of this second issue that we are uh, reading right here. <laughs> um, page 20, page 21, uh, panels three and four. Uh, this team of uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. agents from the end of the Captain America, the first Avenger movie, are <laughs> digging digging up uh, on this glacier. No, no, no. I, I jest because I, I wish these were characters that we knew. I feel like this is an opportunity to have a couple Joes not random masked soldiers mm-hmm. red red cross conscripts uh cobra arctic vipers it's like no like take their masks i know it's really cold and they wouldn't actually they would definitely be wearing masks but like let, let this be some joes anyway they're, they're, they seem to be working for this general vicinity <laughs> oh no that's 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 where they are working sorry <laughs> in the one two three in the fourth panel one of them has a a shovel and they seem to have dug out the three joes who were in a like a bomb vault or a <laughs> bomb proof vault or like a bank vault or like a safe deposit box vault which when scanner blew up the entire base around them it didn't like they didn't also go up in that explosion and all the debris didn't uh crush them and so in my mind that uh that um price sticker gun or that like barcode scanner that the like cobra arctic viper like shield rescue agent who's finding captain america with nick fury in that captain america movie in panel two that's actually like a laser and he's like warmed up the ice and melted the arctic bomb shelter so that with just a shovel these uh four guys rescuing captain america can actually pull uh scarlet snake eyes and yeah. my my no prize it's an adamantium shovel uh, and i guess because uh james jonah jameson is in issue 95 or is it 96 of a uh, real american hero mm. that converging <laughs> diverging universes there there can be adamantium for one panel uh in gi joe Th- to me this is like a funny nitpick i'm not i'm not actually uh you know frowning at you know jerwa or uh Seeley for for this it's like there, there's you know i can invent the actual s- story that they've 
done some other work to get them out of that space. That's okay. Um, here's something. Uh, what is, Mark, I think you're going to have to make a new jingle. Oh, no. No, a good one. A good one. For a change. <laughs> uh, a good one. Lots of your jingles are great. It's, it's just because I'm just because I'm I'm grumpy about these two issues. Anyway, what is the opposite of error detected? What would some kind of <laughs> surprise bonus be? Surprise! Da, 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 surprise bonus! Da, 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 da. GI Joe, something's great that you didn't expect. Jim and Devil's Do. Here you go. Here's a surprise bonus. Da, 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 da. Okay. Um, this issue, issue forty-one, hmm. has an extra page. It's twenty-three pages long. Oh, wow. And if it seems like I'm being disproportionately excited about just one extra page of comics, if you've been listening to the podcast, you probably remember me mentioning pretty often how I noticed the difference between modern comics that are 20 pages long and comics of the 80s and 90s that were 22 pages long. So Mm. uh, I do appreciate an extra page. The price didn't go up. And... This is a packed story where an extra page does make a difference. Very good. There's uh, one other item about these two issues, uh, which is sort of a bookend to how you and I started this episode, Mark. Um, There is a page at the end of issue 41. It's after the two pages of letters pages. There's the Devil's Due news page, which says... G.I. Joe being relaunched, though not as romance comic, as initially reported here, because the Devil's Due news page is, is always jokey. And uh, it's it's a quick paragraph, and it says, Blaylock uh, confirms new series, Joe Casey, Stefano Caselli. And then there's a, a, a one-page ad for uh, Dreamer Design, and then there's a one-page ad for the G.I. Joe Collectors Convention, which is happening in June of 2005. And then... This is something I alluded to at the beginning of the episode when I said retailers, and then I stopped talking. There's a there's a full page uh, sort of ad, and it's got Storm Shadow's head, and this looks like a panel from a comic, and he's he's looking at you, and behind him is this uh, sort of orange textured uh, background, and in big block letters in a word balloon, Storm Shadow is saying "Attention retailers," and then in smaller font he says. You are invited to join Devil's Due Publishing and other retailers across the nation for G.I. Joe Day on July 4th or July 4th weekend. G.I. Joe Day is an in-store event you host for your fans in promotion of the all-new G.I. Joe America's Elite. And then there are two more paragraphs of type uh, where he uh, says how uh, stores can get involved and uh, stores uh, what free stuff they'll get. And uh, the final sentence is, uh, uh, fans, this is on the bottom, fans, encourage your local retailer to participate. Mm. So this feels like, and then there's the two-page ad that you referred to. It's all red. It says the red shadows have risen. Uh, And then there's an ad for a uh, a G.I. Joe logo wall plaque from from Diamond. But um, uh, this is a, a bookend both of, how we started the episode with the sort of rumors at the time and the actual news announcement that Jurwa's G.I. Joe would end and be replaced by Casey's G.I. Joe, it has some subtitle, but also that uh, Blaylock in that interview, which was online in early 2005, describes sort of needing 
readers needing fans to come back to G.I. Joe. And this this one page ad, it's it's addressed to retailers, but it's also addressed to readers. If if you're if you're getting the the subtext. Mm-hmm. Yes. And indeed, we they, they sort of in the blurb, they go a lot further than they would normally do in this Devil's Due news that they'd say. Uh, what is true, though, is that before then, one major character will die. We're going on a limb and say it's Snake Eyes. He's not popular, right? So uh, I think we are we are having a trail that uh, in this next arc, at least uh, one major character will die in these final two issues. Uh, yes, and if I can go back one issue. So you're referring to the Devil's Do News page at the end of 41 Mm -hmm. the the inside back cover to 40 is uh it's a grid of 12 squares it's 12 faces there's wraith and cobra commander and snake eyes and storm shadow and and some others and in red block font it says the war will end one will die the red shadows will rise and then the gi joe logo is cracked and then it says may 2005 and so the the threat, the promise of this one-page ad, and and I think this is a new art for this ad. I don't think these are vignettes taken from existing panels of other issues. I think this is new Sealy uh, art, and it's it's colored in a it's almost completely black and white. It's a it's a little warm. There's there's the, the tiniest bit of sort of red brown in it, but it, you'd call it a black and white gray tones. But I, the the threat or promise is that one of these characters Mm. one of these popular or recently made cool joes or cobras uh will die and um uh, the question is is that is that joe colton who just got shot a few pages earlier at the end of 41 or is yet someone else gonna die in 42 43 Mm. i know the answer but uh, yeah, I, I I think I do too. I, I think I remember from general GI Joe fan shatter in 2005. But anyway, I have not read GI Joe 42 and 43, so I will come into our next disavowed episode with a uh, with an open mind. So yeah, I think um, given that they're double pay double sized issues, maybe we should do maybe we should spread it over two two episodes, one episode each. What do you think? That sounds great. This is where I'm obliged to say, maybe with fewer comics to talk about, we'll do a shorter episode. And I'm sure our next episode, just about the double-sized issue 42, is going to be three hours. You heard it here first. You heard it here first, folks. Mark's going to have to break it in half. It's going to be a five-part miniseries. We're going to do 15 pages at a time. Very good. So, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
somewhat of a millstone around his neck that that he wasn't necessarily going to have be able to execute his you know longer story as he wanted that that there there is you know this end goal in in mind that is likely to have meant that these last few issues are are maybe maybe not quite going the way that he wanted but I did in, enjoy them um I thought for the most part it was well handled doing what they were doing and working within the problem you know constraints they probably had to work within so so I'm going to go 7 I I did like these and uh, would happily go back and reread them uh, I'm I'm glad that you got a lot out of them, and I'm gonna give them a uh, a three. I, I think they don't work on on many different levels. I don't think they're they're great GI Joe stories. I don't think they're great stories. I, I don't love the art, colorings. Yeah, fine. I mean, it's it's not my favorite, but it's not my least favorite of the Devils Do Run. I might sort of bump this up to a four uh, out of sympathy for the creative team because to go back to an example i cited earlier in the marvel transformers comic at issue 75 there's a big fight and the creative team is firing on all cylinders and issue 75 has a fill-in artist but it's amazing and everyone's favorite character sacrifices himself and it it bummed me out when i read the issue i was really moved and i didn't think he would necessarily come back the writer was going to bring him back at issue like a hundred. Like it was going to happen in over two years. They were starting with right. sort of a new mega arc and the book ends five months later and that character comes back and it's, it's moving, but man, is it rushed? And I thought, well, mm. I guess I had to do it because the book's over. So I have sympathy for a writer who uh, expects to have many issues to tell a story and then is given very few. And I and I did come into these two issues before this episode with an open mind, and I had not read them. But um, yeah, the the negatives really outweigh the positives for me. Um, but you know, we got to do a new jingle. There's an extra page. The covers are great. <laughs> there, I, I like I like Cobra Commander's machinations. He, you know his his, and I like his speeches in the issue, mm-hmm, uh, issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so four. Okay. I, I didn't specifically call it out, but I, I often do appreciate uh, uh, Brendan Joe's ear for for dialogue, such as uh, when Mercer is is sort of teasing. Um, oh yeah, shipwreck. that's that's a that's a mean line. <laughs> what is it? So, what did he say? Something was it something cold and yeah. If you don't cheap? trust me, I'm more than happy to turn in my badge and go find something cold and expensive, like your sister. Right. <laughs> Oof. I, I also also I will say, even though these two issues are rocky for me, I am really interested to see how Jerwa and Seely wrap up this version of G.I. Joe. Mm. Um, I am excited to read the next two issues. You know, it's it's not like it's like I'm, you know, I'm gonna start out with like a scowl and my arms folded. Mm. You know, like I, I want it to be you know, if not like awesome and my favorite thing, I want it to be interesting and and I do love talking about it. So mm-hmm. to 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 my beleaguered co-host and uh and our listeners who may who may think, oh, this guy's a bummer. Uh thanks. Thanks for listening. <laughs> that panel of Mercer as well has got a nice little bit of cartooning, uh, sort of unusually for Seely. He's sort of putting this quite you know expressionistic face. Um yeah, his smirk. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's it's extra smirky. 
But, you know, his sideburns are even sharper than General Ray's. So it's like, man, Seely really likes these sideburns. <laughs> I I have I have I have only pulled off sideburns like that for a few weeks at a time. I'm not joking. I have only pulled off sideburns like that for a few weeks at a time in my life, and and then it felt like too much. So I, I went back to normal sideburns and no sideburns. Okay, so back next time on Talking Joe Disavowed, we will continue our look at the Brandon Jawa era as of GI Joe as it comes to a conclusion. We will be checking out part one of the Dawn of the Red Shadows. Uh, which is issue 42 and over on the regular show as it comes out we will be looking at the issues of era from larry hammer as they are released and talking to the creators and so much more besides uh now tim where can people find you when you are not criticizing comics from almost 20 years ago uh, I, I prefer the word critiquing comics from almost 20 years ago <laughs> Uh, video essays with my creative partners at our YouTube page, Atomic Abe Productions. My brick and mortar comic book store is Hub Comics in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I had a really great interaction with a cu- with two customers last night. Uh, got on to buy some G.I. Joe comics. <laughs> and uh, my G.I. Joe blog is a realamericanbook.com. Excellent. Uh, people can find out more about this show in the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk is a website that has links to all of the places. Uh, we have a Facebook group. Lots of people been joining that lately. We have got a Twitter, an Instagram. We've got a voicemail facility for you to leave comments and feedback. And we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash talkingjoe. So a big thanks to all of our backers. We include Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher, Justin, Rob, and Brian, who are getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. And that is us done. But remember... Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! Laters. This could be bonus waffle or this could be uh, for the next episode. But I did have a really nice uh, interaction with some customers last night and got them to buy some G.I. Joe comics. Mm-hmm. And also, I forgot uh, that in preparation for this uh, episode, because I thought because I didn't like how the characters were dying. Uh, I found um, from a comic writers, a Marvel DC comic writers blog, uh, his reflections on when he killed a character. And I wanted to read these three paragraphs because uh, it it sort of reminds me of how I feel about uh, Jerwa killing all of these characters. But the episode's really long, so I will just save this for the next time uh, that someone dies. Yes, which is either <laughs> either I'll just force it in the next issue if no one dies, or in the next next issue I'm promised from an inside back cover full page ad that someone will die. So let's uh, look forward to that. Yeah, so uh so Tim, note to self, read read those three paragraphs from Priest's website.